Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Lisa Rankin is a doctor. She's a mind-body medicine physician and founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute training program for physicians and other healthcare providers. She's a New York Times bestselling author of her current book, Mind Over Medicine, scientific proof that you can heal yourself. She is on a grassroots mission to put the care back in healthcare and to heal our broken healthcare system, one doctor and one patient at a time. Discouraged by our broken healthcare system and curious why some patients do everything right but still wind up sick, Lissa set out to discover why some patients experience miraculous cures from seemingly incurable illnesses while others remain sick even when they receive the best medical care. See, she researched what really makes people healthy and what predisposes them to illness, not just diet, exercise, and standard healthy behaviors, but everything else. And what she uncovered in the mainstream medical literature led her to develop a type of medical practice she terms whole health medicine, based on the scientifically proven healthy behaviors she shares in Mind Over Medicine. She is now leading a healthcare revolution to empower patients to heal themselves while encouraging the healthcare industry to embrace and facilitate rather than resist such medical miracles. Lisa is here today to talk about the power of your mind. And Lisa, hello and welcome back to my show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So um, what are... You you were a practicing physician for a number of years, had a successful practice, but there were quite a bit of frustrations that you've talked about before when you were a guest on my show and also in your book. And so you have grasped that, you know, you were on the ground floor as far as seeing kind of the holes in our healthcare system. What are the, some of the holes that you have seen professionally? Well, my the, I guess there's two things that I would say were the the deepest kind of traumas for me in trying to fit into a system that I had been called into very early the way sort of people are called to the priesthood. It was very much a spiritual calling. Uh, and there were two obstacles that were, I mean, there were many obstacles, but there were two that I would say were the most difficult. One was time. When I started in my practice, I was expected to see 25 patients a day, which I thought was a lot. And by the time I left, I was expected to see 40 patients a day in the same amount of time. So I was very often double booked in 15-minute slots, which meant I got seven and a half minutes with a patient. And it's, it's very difficult to try to be a healer in seven and a half minutes. The second is that, you know, when I talk, when I talk to patients and also to doctors now, I'm, I'm training doctors in the Whole Health Medicine Institute, and, and so we've talked a lot about this. I've, I've spoken with the doctors about this. I think one of the things that has made our healthcare system so broken is that the healthcare system has been co-opted by the profane masculine. And the only way we're going to heal it is with the divine feminine. And that sounds very airy-fairy. But what really what I mean is that when I talk to patients and when I talk to doctors, they want to bring the care back to healthcare. 
They want nurturing. They want comfort when they're sick. They want to be heard. They want to feel held. You know, they want to be hugged when they walk in the office. They want time. Uh, they want to be listened to. You know, they want to have their intuition respected. And somehow in the process of developing the, the amazing level of technology that we have developed in modern medicine, I mean, I am in no way dissing modern medicine. My husband cut two fingers off his left hand with a table saw. And thank God for Dr. Jonathan Jones, who had the technology to spend eight hours in surgery with a microscope putting together every bone, artery, nerve in my husband's fingers so that he has 10 fingers today. So I'm not, I'm not dissing that part of it. I'm just saying that what if we could have both? You know, what if we could mix that technology with the level of care that people used to expect from their doctors 100 years ago? You know, all the doctor had was to be able to come to the bedside and offer care and to, to comfort the family and to help make the patient comfortable and to give hope or when no hope was left to provide solace as somebody is transitioning. And we've, we've largely forgotten how to do that, and it's hurt us all, doctors, patients, nurses, all of us. And so when you're talking about, um, in your book, the power of our mind, you went and actually looked for research about how, looking for evidence of how this could actually make an impact on our health, did you not? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm in many ways the least likely person on the planet to have written <laughs> this book. <laughs> Given the way that I was raised, I was raised in a, you know, a family of doctors. My father was a very conventional physician who made fun of anything he called woo-woo. <laughs> I was not exposed to anything in the world of mind-body medicine. I'd never heard of Bernie Siegel or Larry Dossie or Christian Northrup or any of these people during my medical training or during my childhood. I was not raised by hippies, you know. Um, and I went to very academic institutions like Duke and Northwestern. And, and so my upbringing and my education really were conventional. Mm -hmm. And I spent eight years practicing in a very conventional practice. So it wasn't until I got fed up with that conventional practice and decided I'd rather not practice medicine than do it that way because I honestly felt like I was selling out my integrity every day. Like every day I'd go to work and the job was a good job and it was a stable paycheck and all of that, but I felt like I was selling my soul because I knew at the end of the day that I could have offered so much more to my patients if, if I had been left to my own devices. So I wound up, I wound up um, leaving medicine for two years thinking I would never go back. But as, as these things happen, you can quit your job, but you can't quit your calling and the calling just wouldn't go away, but I wasn't willing to go back to doing things the way that I had been doing it, not just because I was unhappy, but because it literally made me sick. Mm -hmm. By the time I was 33, I was taking seven medications for a whole host of chronic health conditions that my doctors told me were incurable and that I would be medication dependent for the rest of my life. And uh, when I quit my job, my, my health conditions started getting better. <laughs> so... I definitely wasn't willing to sell out my body again. In fact, when, when we started the first retreat for the Whole Health Medicine Institute, the first question I asked the doctors in the group was, how did, how did you sacrifice your body in order to become a doctor? And the, the stories people told were just horrific, horrific things that we do to our bodies in order to become doctors. And so I wasn't willing to do that, but I was willing to investigate going back to medicine on my own terms so I wound up taking a job in an integrative medicine practice in Marin County, 
So I moved my family up there, and uh, it was so much better in so many ways. I had a whole hour with my patients, which was a huge blessing. I mean, I was seeing seven patients a day instead of 40. It was night and day. Um, but it was a very interesting cohort of patients. These, this group of patients was unlike any group of patients I'd ever taken care of before because they were health nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they were drinking their green juice and eating their vegan diets and working out with personal trainers, and they were taking 20 supplements. And by the time they had come to see me, um, because it was a specialty practice, cash-based, they had already seen the best doctors at Stanford and UCSF. They had really optimized everything that Western medicine has to offer, and they were out of options. So they were coming to me saying, help, nothing is working. And I was looking at these patients thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help these people. They're doing everything right. They should be the healthiest people on the planet. But they were some of the sickest people that I'd ever met. And this made no sense to me. So I started, I wound up changing my intake form. You know, the the paperwork that you fill out when you come to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I started asking some very unusual questions, things that probably most of you listening haven't been asked by your doctor. Like, if you could break any rule and there would be no consequences, what rule would you break? I started asking people about their romantic lives and about their professional lives, whether they felt like they were in touch with their life purpose, whether they were stressed about money, whether they felt spiritually connected, whether they felt like they were fully expressing themselves creatively. And I found that I was, I was discovering a lot about my patients. And I found two questions that were really the doozies. One was... Wow, it's thundering here in Chicago. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, one was if you could, if, if your health condition had a message to deliver to you, what message would it deliver? And then the real mother load question was this, and I'll ask anybody listening if you have any health conditions or even if you just feel like you're not at the top of your health game, what does my body need in order to heal? So when I first started asking that question, I thought people would kind of give me treatment intuitions like, oh, you know, I think I'll skip that surgery and maybe we'll try that medication instead or, you know, maybe I'll do the supplement instead of the drug. And sometimes people would say that, but more often than not, they were saying things like, I need to quit my job or I need to leave my toxic marriage or I need to finally put my son in rehab or I need to send my mom to a nursing home because I just can't have her living with me anymore. And I'd say, well, look, you just wrote the prescription for yourself. Like, go, do it. You know, and and then they'd say, well, wait, I can't do that. That's crazy. That would be crazy. And so I started talking to them about, well, let's assume for a minute that you just wrote the prescription for yourself and that if you did that, your health conditions would get better. Would you be willing to do it then? And they'd sort of look at me funny. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd say, well, let's look at it this way. Like, what's the payoff that you're getting for not doing what it is that you know that you need to do in order to deal with this, to maybe get well? And some of them didn't like me so well after that. But many of my patients started getting brave because it takes a ton of courage to actually listen to your intuition in this way. And they started actually doing what they had, what they had prescribed for themselves. And I started witnessing my patients experiencing these radical remissions from their health conditions where I hadn't given them any medical treatment and they were were getting better. And that didn't fit into my paradigm. That was like, I'm sorry, does not compute. (laughs) (laughs) It goes against your training, doesn't it, as a physician? It totally goes against my training. 
um, there's, I'm supposed to be responsible for curing them. They're not supposed to cure themselves. And I, I couldn't explain it physiologically. And that, like I said, didn't fit into my very logical, skeptical brain. So it launched me down a rabbit hole of trying to look into the medical research because if you're trained like I was, your Bible, I, I often say that modern medicine, um, the medical establishment is very much like a fundamentalist religion. In, in the, there's a whole bunch of rules and you're not supposed to question them and you worship those rules and if you break those rules you are uh, you are you know a heretic and 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 you're ostracized <laughs> so so i went to the bible and the bible of modern medicine is the medical journals so mm-hmm. i was looking through the new england journal of medicine and the journal of the american medical association and medline and all of the different sources that i know how to use in order to try to find answers to medical questions and I was trying to look up what happens when people get better without medicine. And I found all this data on spontaneous remissions. And a spontaneous remission, doctors define it as patients who get better from seemingly incurable illnesses, either without medical treatment or with medical treatment deemed to be inadequate for cure. And I found a database of 3,500 case studies. It's called the Spontaneous Remission Project. These are all case studies written up by doctors as kind of medical mysteries of people who had seemingly incurable illnesses and got better. And this is everything from all sorts of stage four cancers to a gunshot wound to the head left untreated, an HIV positive person who became HIV negative, heart failures, kidney failure, diabetes, high blood pressure, thyroid disease, autoimmune diseases, skin disorders. I mean, you name it, 3,500 case studies. I read every single one of those with my jaw on the floor because I didn't know how to wrap my brain around that. What was happening to these people? And more importantly, is there anything we can learn from them? That none of the case studies really told what the patient did. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. There was no explanation. It was just, okay, here's their condition, and boom, it's gone. But but they didn't include, like, the, I wanted to interview those people. Like, hang on a minute. What did you do? Mm-hmm. Well, it turned I, that's when I came across the research by Dr. Kelly Turner, who did her Ph.D. thesis on exactly that. She sought out people who had had spontaneous remissions from uh, stage 4 cancers. Most of them had refused medical treatment, you know, most likely because their doctor told them it's not going to cure you anyway and they didn't want to feel bad, so they decided to just take their chances and do it naturally. And so she interviewed these patients as well as the often alternative healthcare providers that they sought out to support them in their journeys. And she tried to figure out, were these things just flukes? Were these spontaneous remissions just luck? Or were they? was there something we could learn from them? And what she found is that they all had six common behaviors uh, in, you know, in common. I, I list all of those six behaviors in Mind Over Medicine. Only one of them is something that you might have ever been prescribed by your doctor were you facing stage four cancer. And I found that shocking. So she, she did all of this beautiful research on these patients. And, you know, my big takeaway from that was like, wow, this was not a fluke, that there are proactive things that we might be able to do when we have an illness we consider incurable that, uh, that perhaps are, are, are going to increase our chance of spontaneous remission. 
And when I looked at that list of behaviors, many of them had to do with things that were going on in the mind, like bringing more love, joy, and happiness into your life, (laughs) one of them. Like, wow, imagine that. Bringing more love, joy, and happiness into your life makes you more likely to get better from stage four cancer. I mean, that feels like it should be true, right? But but it, it just, I don't know, like I said, it really didn't compute with my <laughs> with the paradigm I had been taught. So the big question that I have had was, so is it, is it possible that the mind can heal the body? And if so, is there any proof? Because that sounds very fuzzy to my very mm-hmm. logical, concrete brain. And that's when I started digging further into the literature, and I realized that we have been proving, the medical establishment has been proving for 50 years that the mind can heal the body. We call it the placebo effect. (laughs) Is that to discredit it? (laughs) Well, and, you know, and and that's how we talk about the placebo effect, right? We say it's just the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. It's no better than placebo. We talk about it as this real thing, and I certainly, I used to be a, a researcher in a clinical trial. I was a clinical investigator for pharmaceutical company trials. So I know all about how that works, and I know that the pharmaceutical companies are doing everything they can to minimize the placebo effect because it's a thorn in the side of modern medicine. It gets in the way of bringing new surgeries or new drugs to market because basically evidence-based medicine states that in order to claim that something is effective, we have to prove that it's better than the body's natural Mm self-healing. So some conditions are very placebo-responsive. So there are some conditions for which it's almost impossible to find a treatment that's better than placebo. For example, female libido. You know, everybody's looking for the new Viagra for women, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to make some pharmaceutical company a fortune. <laughs> We're testing all these drugs to see what, can we, what pill can we give women that will turn them on. Well, if you look at the data from all the things that they've studied, almost everything that you give women and say, this is going to turn you on, turns them on. (laughs) So it's a very placebo-responsive condition, so they can't find a pill that works better than, you know, a Vaseline intensive care lotion that you say, rub on your inner thigh, and this is going to make you feel better. (laughs) So, you know, my research into the placebo effect was sort of twisting my brain. During this whole time, I I, I was calling my literary agent all the time because I was working on another book, and... And this was like getting under my skin. So I was calling her all the time and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I think I'm supposed to write a book about this. And it, it was very disturbing to me, um, you know, in the way that I guess if you're a part of a fundamentalist religion and then you find out that what you were taught in your religion is proving not to be true, it's very disillusioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very idealistic about that. So... My, my next question, it, the, whole, the whole book, Mind Over Medicine, is a whole series of questions that arose, sort of not in any particular order, of things that went against everything that I had been taught and my investigation into trying to find the truth about them. So the next question that came up for me was, so these people that get better from placebos, 18 to 80% of the time, when people in clinical trials are given a sugar pill or a saline injection or fake surgery, they get better. And it's on average, it's about 30 to 35%. And, and that number would probably be much higher were the pharmaceutical industry not being very proactive to try to minimize anybody who responds to placebos. Most of them have a washout trial 
where they give people placebos and they see if they respond, and if they respond, they get rid of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that number would probably be even higher if people were actually given sugar pills and told for sure that it was the real drug and, and, and if there was no washout. So my question was, are they just feeling better? Like, is it just a mental thing? Or is there something physiologic that's happening in their body? And what I found is that in these trials, it's not just mental. The bronchi are dilating, and colons are becoming less inflamed, ulcers are going away, warts are disappearing. I love the Rogaine trials. They gave bald men sugar pills and they grew hair. <laughs> so <laughs> it's measurable. And, you know, we can prove that. And the opposite is also true. Um, that positive belief that they're getting the new miracle drug combined with the nurturing care of somebody in a white coat who says, I believe this is going to help you because the person in the white coat doesn't know whether they're getting the placebo or not. That combination of nurturing care and positive belief, you know, is, is the placebo effect. But the opposite is also true. There's something called the nocebo effect where um, people, the, the same people who are getting the placebos have been warned that they might get the real drug and that the real drug may have these side effects. And a, an equally high percentage of people will wind up getting side effects when they're actually not even getting the drug. And they'll get the very side effects they were warned about. So all of this kind of led me to, uh, to question further. And I, I could go on in my little monologue here. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I, I'm just but, fascinated because so when people really attach, it sounds like when they attach to that thought, that belief of, oh, here's the side effect they can actually create that in their body. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yes. I mean, one great study that I read um, was a woman with um, multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And one of her personalities was diabetic and one of her personalities was not. And she would flip back and forth between these and the researchers were monitoring her blood sugars. And literally her blood sugar would spike up when she was in the personality that was diabetic, and then it would drop when she was in the personality that wasn't. That's crazy, right? It's absolutely crazy. That's crazy. So that's an example of the placebo and the nocebo right there. And another great story in the medical literature, this is a 1957 case study, was about this guy, Mr. Wright. And Mr. Wright had a stage four lymphosarcoma. He had tumors the size of oranges in his armpits, his neck, his groin, his abdomen was full of fluid, his chest was full of fluid, they were having to drain two quarts of milky fluid every day for him to breathe. Uh, His doctor, Dr. West, didn't think he was going to last a week. But Mr. Wright heard about this promising new drug called Krebiosin, and he was attached to getting this drug. So he was begging his doctor, please give me the Krebiosin. But the only way to get the Krebiosin was on a clinical trial where the doctor had to be able to say that the patient had at least three months to live, and Mr. Wright was just too sick to qualify. So... um, Mr. Wright was very persistent and didn't give up, and he kept pestering his doctor. So finally, Dr. West gives up, and he gives Mr. Wright the Krebiosin on a Friday. But he honestly doesn't expect that he'll last the weekend. And on Monday, he comes in to see his patient, and Mr. Wright is up walking around the the uh, hallways of the hospital, and his tumors have melted like snowballs on a hot stove, and they're half the size that they were on Friday. Ten days later, his cancer is gone. So Mr. Wright is convinced, like, this is the wonder drug, cancer cure, and he's, you know, praising Krebiosin for two months until the initial trials 
the initial data came in from the trial showing that Krebyism didn't look like it was very effective. So Mr. Wright lost hope, and his cancer came right back. So same thing. He had these big tumors all over his body, milky fluid in his lungs. So this time, Dr. West decides to get sneaky. So he tells him, you know what? The dose of Krebyism that you got, it was tainted in shipping, but I got an ultra-pure, highly concentrated dose of Krebyosin. Look how well it, it worked last time when it wasn't a good dose. We're going we're gonna to use this instead. So Mr. Wright's totally on board, and Dr. West then injected him with nothing more than saline. Mm-hmm. Days later, the same thing happened. All of his cancer is gone. And he's rocking and rolling once again, praising Krebyosin until the American Medical Association blew it by publishing a trial that proved that Krebyosin was utterly worthless, didn't work, taking it off the market. And Mr. Wright died two days later. So it's a, I love that story because it's so beautifully, well, it's, it, it demonstrates three things that I write a lot about in Mind Over Medicine. The placebo effect, right? Mm-hmm. When he was given the saline injection and got better. That's the placebo effect. The nocebo effect, which is that when he lost hope in Krebyosin, he got cancer and spontaneous remission, meaning that his body somehow made himself better when he got nothing but saline. So, um, you know, it's, it's powerful stuff. And this is the only thing that was happening this whole time because the Krebyosin obviously was proven to be ineffective. The only thing happening the whole time was whether or not Mr. Wright believed he was getting something that was going to help him. So, so Lisa, it sounds like you are not advocating we need to drop traditional medicine, but asking questions, could there be something more that maybe we don't know about? And Absolutely. Under- Absolutely. Like, like I said, thank God for Dr. Jones or my husband wouldn't have 10 fingers. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying, you know, people with cancer shouldn't get their chemotherapy or, or go get surgery. I'm saying it's not enough. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the patients that I was working with in Marin, they had already optimized Western medicine. And the reality is, if you look at doctor's offices, most of the people that we're taking care of, we have optimized what Western medicine has to offer them, and they're still not well. Mm-hmm. That's the majority of patients. I mean, absolutely. If you've got a bladder infection, you've never had a bladder infection before, go take your antibiotic. You'll be better in three days. You know, mm-hmm. there are some things that are really easy to cure with modern medicine. And I'm not saying that the mind can't heal those things, but why not take advantage of what we have that's easy? I'm talking more about those people who have optimized Western medicine, and it's not working. Mm-hmm. Or, or Western medicine has, you know, has given up, which is what happens with many, many people with stage four cancers. They say, you know what, we, we've done what we can. And at that point, you've got nothing to lose. <laughs> but... By trying to optimize the mind's ability to heal the body. Well, and I think the other thing that's important to say, and and I'll say it, but um, you touch on this in your book and you've touched a little bit on this in the interview today, is that um, pharmaceutical companies, they have a vested interest in making, finding um, prescriptions that they can sell and patent and make money off of. And so if if there's a natural cure, they're they're not going to be as inclined. Well, and sadly, again, because many doctors are like I was and they're expected to see 40 patients a day, the doctor's inclined to use the prescription too because that's, that's the only thing you can do in, in that shorter time. Mm-hmm. It takes time to actually help a patient activate mind-body medicine. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that was, for me, again, all the data was so clear that there was something going on in this combination of belief and the, what, what the healthcare provider believes, there's a ton of data around 
the facilitation of the right healthcare providers and, and how the kinds of relationships we need to have with our healthcare providers. So to say that you can heal yourself is sort of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. The, the data shows that the body knows how to heal itself, but it does so much more effectively when it's being supported by the right healthcare provider. And there's, it's pure physiology around all of this. I'll, I'll give you a little anatomy, neuroanatomy lesson here. So I, I really needed to understand, um, because all of this was not really computing, I needed to understand on a physiologic level what's happening here. Is it magic? No, it's not magic. It's, it's like I said, it's pure physiology. So what's happening with a lot of these patients is that the, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala that is the mm-hmm. frady cat kind of uh, danger uh, uh, spotter of your limbic brain. So this is not the smart, thinking, rational forebrain. This is the, um, you know, the lizard brain, your primal mm-hmm. brain, and it's there to protect you. It's meant to tell you that there's a tiger on the loose and your life is at risk and you need to get away from the tiger. So I, I like to think of the amygdala as those meerkats at the zoo. I love the meerkats. They're like those little prairie dogs. And, and there's always a meerkat sentry. So there's always a bunch of prairie dogs like running around. And then there's the meerkat sentry who's like standing up on the mound and, and he's looking everywhere. He's constantly hypervigilant. They take turns. And when, when it's their turn to be the sentinel, you know, they don't move. That's, that's what they do. And that's what the amygdala is doing all the time. It's like the meerkat sentry. It's just on the lookout for danger constantly. So I, I just had this happen. I just had this happen uh, on Wednesday. I was um, on my way to Indiana to speak, and all of a sudden something flew in the road into my borrowed car, and it blew out two of my tires on the left-hand side, hmm. and the whole car tipped to the side. Um, I thought my car was going to roll over, and here I am, like, it's only two hours until I'm supposed to be in front of 300 people speaking. Now, when that happens, my amygdala is going, danger, Right. So this is a good thing because I need to figure out how to wrangle this car off of the freeway where I'm going 65 miles an hour and I'm about to hit the car in front of me and the person behind me is about to hit me. And I've got to have all of my strength to get this big minivan off the road and limp onto the, the shoulder and, and, and protect myself from danger. So when that happens, my amygdala is communicating with my hypothalamus. It's talking to my pituitary gland. It's talking to my adrenal gland. It's spitting out cortisol and epinephrine. So that I have my heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, my blood sugar goes up, blood flow goes to large muscle groups so that I'm strong, so I can I can manage the car, I can run away from the tiger if I need to, and then I get on the side of the road, right? So, boom, okay, I'm safe, all is well. And if I were a healthy human or an animal, that stress response, Walter Cannon calls it the stress response, some of you know it as the fight or flight response. It's the sympathetic nervous system that gets activated. That stress response is supposed to only last for 90 seconds after the threat is gone. So supposedly I pull off on the side of the road, right, and and 90 seconds later I'm relaxed. Okay, I'm safe. But what happens? (laughs) My brain starts going into overdrive, right? Oh, no, I'm supposed to be on stage in front of 300 people in two hours. Danger. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, this isn't even my car. This is my best friend's car. Oh, no, how much is it going to cost? Like, oh, no, I don't even have my AAA car c- card because my, my wallet got stolen in Miami and I haven't put a new one in there. How am I going to get off the road? So this is what happens to many of us. We, we have one potentially life-threatening event and then it triggers all these other threats. 
And, and, and here's the thing, the, the amygdala cannot tell the difference between, you know, I'm about to get hit by a car and I'm about to miss my speech or I, I, I don't have my AAA card or I'm not going to be able to pay the bills this month or nobody loves me mm-hmm. or even somebody spilled red wine on my white carpet. As far as the amygdala is concerned, all of those are the same. They're all signaling there's a tiger on the loose and your life is in danger. And so when that happens, the stress response is getting triggered. And, and this was the big aha for me, is that the, the nervous system has two operating systems. We have the stress response, and then we have its opposite, the relaxation response. Herbert Benson wrote all about it in the 1970s in his book called The Relaxation Response. And he's been studying the relaxation response since the 1960s. And this is the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the homeostatic part of the nervous system. And if, if you only get one thing from this, this talk today, it's this. Our bodies have natural self-repair mechanisms that know how to fix broken proteins. We make cancer cells every day that we fight. We, um, you know, we're exposed to infectious agents that we know how to protect ourselves from. Our bodies are genius at this. We've got natural built-in anti-aging stuff. I mean, it's all taken care of. We're supposed to, you know, live and then die of old age, right? And, and these self-repair mechanisms are supposed to take care of everything to make sure that happens. But those self-repair mechanisms that we know are there, they teach us in our physiology text. That is the one thing they do teach us in medical school. We know they're there. The placebo effect proves that they're there. But those self-repair mechanisms only function when the nervous system is in the relaxation response. So I want to say that again. Your natural self-repair mechanisms only operate when your nervous system is in relaxation response, when your body's in the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, unfortunately, most of us have 50 or more stress responses per day. We're not supposed to. It's supposed to be a rare thing that only happens when your life is in danger. So every time I'm in a stress response, you know, when I'm sitting there, my car's broken down on the side of the road and I'm stressing about all the things that are, are, you know, might go wrong, my body can't heal itself during that time. And this was a huge aha for me because it made sense. I was able to circle back to my patients in Marin County and realize this is what was wrong. They were eating right. They were exercising. They were seeing the best doctors and taking their vitamins, taking their medications but they were in chronic repetitive stress response most of the time. And it was disabling their body's natural self-repair mechanisms, predisposing them to illness. So, Lissa, what you're saying then is that we need to work on practice or practice getting into our relaxation response so that our body can be at its optimal to take care of itself. Exactly. And that's true whether you're sick or not. So my mom, we just, my mom called me two weeks ago and she said, my neck hurts. And so she, I said, well, you know, go see your doctor. And she went to see the doctor and she got an x-ray and the x-ray showed a lytic lesion at C4. So there was a big black hole in her spine and her doctor ordered an MRI and she asked why, why did you order the MRI? And, and the doctor said, well, it's probably metastatic cancer. And he turned around and walked away. Never made eye contact, no other explanation. He ordered the MRI for seven days later. So needless to say, my phone rang. So my mom has read my book, and she's a devotee of my work. And she said, Lissa, my amygdala is freaking out. 
and I'm in stress response, and if I do have metastatic cancer, I know that, that I need to spend the next week doing everything I can to be in relaxation response so that my self-repair mechanisms can do their job. So help me. What can I do? And so my mom and I, I walked her through the process that I teach in the book, which is the six steps to healing yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's all about writing your own prescription for how to reduce stress responses in your body and how to increase relaxation responses. So we started with mom. We started with the easy part. The easy part is figuring out how can I, how can I be proactive about bringing more relaxation responses into my body? These are things that are pretty easy for most people to do and usually very pleasurable. So, for example, things that will trigger relaxation responses. Herbert Benson teaches a technique that's super simple that's based on transcendental med meditation, and I teach it in the book, and he teaches it in his book as well, that's basically just choosing a word, um, something that's comforting. Like, for me, I did this in the car as soon as I pulled off to the side of the road, and the word that I chose was safe. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you can choose love, one, peace, om, whatever works for you. And, and... Breathe deeply, and as you're breathing, repeat your one-word mantra on the exhale. And as other thoughts inevitably come to mind, just passively disregard them. Notice them, you know, hello, remembering, hello, planning, and just come back to the breath. And if you were in Herbert Benson's research studies, he'd have you do that for 10 to 20 minutes, once or twice a day. And that simple technique has been proven to uh, improve or even cure a whole host of healthcare conditions that are all listed in my book. Um, so that's one simple thing. And so, I, I actually, sorry, go ahead. No, so is that a way to practice training the mind so that you don't get into this downward spiral of, you know, danger, danger, and the lizard's going crazy? Exactly. It, okay. Exactly. So the minute I, I knew I was in fight or flight mm -hmm. when, I, when I pulled over to the shoulder, and before I called anybody or did anything, I sat and I spent 10 minutes doing that relaxation response because I was like, I got to get it together. Even though I knew I, now I, I just used 10 minutes of my time to get to this thing, I needed to get out of stress response. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a way to abort in emergencies, mm -hmm. but it's also a way to prevent. So my mom, um, I, I recorded a, uh, a relaxation response activating guided meditation. It's like a 20-minute meditation. That's all about listening to your intuition and, and healing your body and all of that. So my mom loves that. Um, and so she's part of her prescription. She said, I'm going to listen to your meditation t twice a day. And anybody who's listening here can get that meditation at mindovermedicinebook.com. There's a free self-healing kit that you can download, and it's got that meditation right there. Um, so my mom decided she was going to do that twice a day. She also, gardening, it, she loves to garden, and that's very good for her relaxation responses. So she added that. She, she loves to scrapbook. Creative expression is one of those things that's been shown to activate relaxation responses. We also talked about, um, you know, she goes to church, and church is very relaxing for her. So she decided she was going to tell her pastor, and she was going to go to church every night. Um, that's a common one. Attending religious services has been shown to activate relaxation responses, and uh, people who attend religious services live up to 14 years longer than those who don't, probably because of that, because it activates relaxation responses for those who are actually aligned with where they're going. It can also trigger stress responses, obviously, if your preacher is, you know, saying hell and damnation, and you don't really, <laughs> you don't really believe that, so it's all about alignment. Um, 
But there are lots of other relaxation response techniques, and Mom and I talked about these, things like laughter. She decided to go out and get some comedy movies because laughter has been proven to be a great relaxation response activator, as has sex. So it's like, Mom, you know, my dad died seven years ago. She's like, no, 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 we're not going to be doing that one right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and there are some relaxation response activators that are um, surprising to most people. Like one of them is the healing act of generosity. So there's a couple great stories that I, that I love about, about generosity and its effects on health. One is this guy, Andy Mackey. So he was a 71-year-old guy. He's had nine heart surgeries. He was taking 15 medications that were causing all kinds of side effects, and he was really suffering. So um, he finally went to his doctor and said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I've got to stop. I've got to stop these medications. And the doctor said, well, if you do, you're going to die within a year. And he said, well, if that's the case, I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do. So he took the money that he had been spending on his heart medicines, and he went out and he bought 300 harmonicas for kids. And he took them into the public schools and decided to give them lessons. So a month later, he's still alive. So he took his money again. He bought 300 more harmonicas. And it's now been 11 years and 16,000 harmonicas later. Wow. And Andy Mackey is still, you know, teaching harmonica lessons. So um, there's another great story about that. Cammie Walker was in her early 30s when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And she had tried everything Western medicine had to offer, and it wasn't working. And so she, um, she went to see this South African medicine woman who wrote on a prescription pad, give 29 gifts in 29 days. And so she did. And she wrote a whole book about it. It's called 29 Gifts. And she created a website, 29gifts.org, mm-hmm. where people are um, you know, pledging to do the same thing. But at the end of 29 days, her symptoms were almost completely gone. So these are, these are unexpected relaxation response activators. And, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting is that seeing a healing practitioner can actually be a relaxation response activator. So I think this is why many people benefit from seeing complementary and alternative healthcare providers. I mean, you think about it, you go to the acupuncturist, you lie on the table, they've got these beautiful offices, they're playing lovely music, they've got the candle lit, somebody is nurturing you, asking you if you want a cup of tea. You're lying on the table for a half an hour while they put the needles in you. You know, they're asking you how you're doing. They're talking to you and listening to you. This is great for the relaxation response. This is very relaxing. You know, is it, is it the needles or is it the care? You know, if you look at the data, acupuncture hasn't been, uh, really hasn't been shown to be much more effective than placebo. But again, people say that as if it's a bad thing. It's highly effective. And so is sham acupuncture. In other words, if you just take needles and you put them willy-nilly all over the body, <laughs> seriously, people respond just as effectively. So, so the Western medical establishment has claimed, oh, well, acupuncture doesn't work then. But I, I think that's where we've missed something. Hang on a minute. It's totally working. <laughs> and people mm-hmm. are getting great results. But maybe it's not working the way we think it is. And I would say the same might be true for Western medicine. So the doctor can be uh, a, a real healing force when it's the right kind of doctor. The doctor can activate that same placebo response. And it may be that much of what we get from the doctor is not the pill or the surgery, but the nurturing care and the relaxation response activation that turns on our own natural self-healing mechanisms. My mom is a great example of this as well. She's heard, my dad was a doctor. I'm a doctor. She really believes in Western medicine. 
And my mom is one of those people who she'll have a, a, a severe side effect of something and she'll call me and say she's going to the doctor and she lives an hour from her doctor. So she'll get in the car and I swear to you, like more times than not, by the time my mom actually gets to the doctor, her symptom is gone. <laughs> and she gets so frustrated because she wants it to be really bad when she sees her doctor so they can find out what it is. But it's like she's so relaxed just knowing that the doctor's going to handle it <laughs> that her self-healing mechanisms kick in and her symptom goes away. And it's frustrating to her. Because she has a belief that the doctor is going to heal her. She does. She believes that the doctor is going to handle it. And then she gets very frustrated. And, Hang on, it's not supposed to be gone. <laughs> so, you know, I think the doctor can really be the placebo in many ways. And I say that in the best possible terms. My friend Nancy Novak who runs a nonprofit in, the, in Marin County, was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and given a very poor prognosis. And she found this wonderful doctor at Stanford who gave her his, his office number, his home number, his cell phone number, his pager number. And he said, Nancy, I want you to know that, you know, even though that doctor told you that your numbers are bad and that the prognosis is poor, I want you to know I've seen people just like you who have been alive 30 years later. And I want you to know that you are not going to be alone during this, that I am here with you. Can you imagine what happened to her amygdala from the doctor that told her that she had, you know, a very poor chance of surviving five years and, and, and then turned around and walked out the door compared to this guy who said, you know what, I believe you could be that one that licks this and you're not going to have to do it alone. All of a sudden, her amygdala calms down. She goes from stress response to relaxation response. And her natural self-healing capacities are now optimized. So, Nancy, that's been more than 10 years ago. Nancy is alive and well and doing great and runs a nonprofit whose motto is nobody goes through cancer alone. Aww. Yeah, it's called nancyslist.org. I will add that to our show notes. Um, so one of the things, my big takeaway from reading your book was that, you know, health is more than just the numbers. It's more than the numbers on the scale or your cholesterol numbers or your sugar numbers. You talk about health, you know, in terms of happiness and connection and relationships. And there's so many components, not just about like you were talking about earlier, those patients in Marin who were coming and they had all the best Western medicine, but there were still some things missing. And didn't you find out from working with them about that the importance of nurturing and connection and happiness. That's Absolutely. also part of it. Absolutely. Well, my big question after doing all the research on the placebo and nocebo response, oh, I want to add one thing about the nocebo effect. We talked about the doctor as placebo. Mm -hmm. My mother also was a great example of the doctor as nocebo. So you can imagine the minute he said, you know, it's probably metastatic cancer and then turned around and walked away, he's going to trigger her amygdala to trigger mm -hmm. responses. So, Anyway, doing all that placebo and nocebo data, my big question was, so what if you're not in a clinical trial, right? Most of us aren't sitting around taking sugar pills or getting saline injections like Mr. Wright. So I was trying to find what else, because basically the researchers explain the placebo effect as calming of the amygdala as the result of a combination of positive belief and nurturing care. But my question was, what else calms the amygdala and what else stresses the amygdala? And so what I found in the medical literature is that in order to be wholly healthy, we need not just to care for our body in traditional ways. We need healthy relationships and a healthy professional life and a healthy creative life and a healthy spiritual life and a healthy sex life and a healthy relationship with our money 
and a healthy environment. We need a healthy mind and it's good to eat well, exercise, and take your vitamins. So mm-hmm. those things are still essential. But I would say they're, I would say, I would go out on a limb and say they're less important than feeling loved, nurtured, tended, being part of a community, and being optimistic. Um, and there's lots of data to show that. There's, I, I tell, there's a whole chapter in Mind Over Medicine about the effects of loneliness on health. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's, copious data showing that lonely people are probably better off, statistically speaking, joining a a group than they are quitting smoking or starting to exercise. And there's a whole chapter in there on death by overwork. The Japanese call it kuroshi, and it's a real live thing. They, Mm -hmm. They track it in Japan. People who work themselves to death and their survivors can, their like their family can get workman's comp benefits. These are young, healthy people who die of heart attack or stroke usually um, without any predisposing factors other than they're working too hard. Um, and so there's a lot of data looking at happiness and how that affects your health. Happy people live up to 10 years longer than unhappy people. And optimists have a 77% lower rate of heart disease compared to pessimists. Wow. But, but when was the last time your doctor prescribed alleviate <laughs> loneliness or... Get over your pessimism. It's, you can get over your pessimism, by the way. There's a great book by Martin Seligman called Learned Optimism. And it's all about teaching yourself. It's about explanatory styles when something bad happens, mm-hmm. how you can retrain your, uh, your explanatory style, the voice in your head, to look at something in a positive way rather than a negative way. It's a great book. I love it. And I, I include some of the research in Mind Over Medicine. But what I found is that those things are as important or more important to your health than all of the conventional things that we think of when we think about living a healthy lifestyle. So when it comes right down to it, I call it whole health. When it comes right down to it, to be wholly healthy, the whole goal is to reduce stress responses in your body and increase relaxation responses. So it's twofold. Like I said, it's easier to, re- to increase relaxation responses than to reduce stress responses. Because increasing relaxation responses might be things like adding a meditation practice, going to yoga class, getting a massage, spending time with your friends, doing work you love, going to church, playing with animals, um, you know, all of those, all of those, giving, you know, a generosity practice, gratitude practice, all of those are great relaxation response activators. And most people don't have a lot of resistance to that other than I don't have time. Mm-hmm. It's much harder for most people when they start looking at their stress responses. And this is where that question that I was asking people in Marin came in so handy. What does my body need in order to heal? It will often, people will often answer with, I need to start meditating. In other words, I I need to add relaxation responses. But more often than not, they'll answer with the stressful thing in their life that needs addressing. So I need to quit my job. I need to get out of this relationship. I need to set boundaries with my mother. I need to tell my boss to, you know, (laughs) take a hike. Um, These are things that require a lot of courage in order to actually reduce stress responses because you can add all the relaxation responses you want if you're still bombarded with stress responses because of circumstances in your life that need to change then, you know, you're not going to be optimally healthy. You'll, you'll counterbalance it some. So if you can't quit your job, absolutely, meditate at lunch. But, um, you know, it's not the same as doing work that you love that's aligned with your soul. 
So I teach a whole wellness model in Mind Over Medicine that I call the whole health care. And there's the six steps to healing yourself are all about teaching people to use that wellness model to diagnose any root causes of illness that might be triggering stress responses or to diagnose places where relaxation responses aren't being optimized and to put together what I call the prescription, which is a real practical patient-guided action plan that's intended to turn on the body's natural self-repair mechanisms as often as possible so that we can live to be 100, whether you're sick now or not. It's all about, it's all about being proactive. My, my literary agent, Michelle Martin, when she, she was the first person to read my book, and when she read it, she called me and she said, Lissa, before I read your book, I honestly thought my body was none of my business. <laughs> I thought my, my body was like my car. Like when my car breaks down, I take it to the auto mechanic. I don't know anything about cars, so I expect my auto mechanic to fix it and give it back to me. And if the mechanic doesn't fix it right, I get mad. She said, my body was the same. My body, I don't know anything about my body. I give it to my doctor. I expect my doctor to fix it. Sometimes my doctor doesn't fix it right. I get to stuff. <laughs> she, said, she said, now I know that my body is my business because I am the gatekeeper of my mind. And it is my responsibility to pay attention to how many stress responses I'm allowing into my body and how many relaxation responses I'm being proactive about bringing to my body. And I also, you know, I, I need to quit being so passive and helpless when it comes to my health. And I loved that because I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's exactly what this book is all about. It's about helping people stop learning helplessness. That's another term that Martin Seligman uses mm -hmm. in Learned Optimism. There's lots of data that shows that when patients learn helplessness, in other words, when you're just passive and you just give yourself over to your doctor, you actually it's actually a survival advantage to be proactive. There was one great research study looking at rats where the rats were injected with cancer and they were given the type of cancer that 50% of the time people will die from the cancer, uh, the, the rats would die from the cancer, and 50% of the time they'd get better. And the control group was given the cancer and put in a cage and nothing was done to them and as expected, 50% of the time they died of cancer. Another group was given the same cancer and put in a cage where they were shocked, but they could, get a, they could learn to get away from the shock so they could learn to be proactive and they quickly learned how to avoid the shocks. And that group only died of cancer 30% of the time. And then there was a third group where they put them in a cage and they shocked them, but they couldn't get away. So they, they, start, they tried in the beginning, and then they just laid down and got shocked. And that group got uh, cancer 73% of the time. So the group that got shocked and learned how to get away from it actually did better than the group that didn't even get shocked. So being proactive about taking your health into your own hands, knowing that your body is your business, and doing your part is a survival advantage. You're more likely to live to be 100 if you're operating in that way. And it doesn't mean not taking advantage of Western medicine, but it means making Western medicine part of your prescription that's one piece of your treatment. So when not my mom got my mom got the good news that she didn't have cancer last week, Yay. it was something benign. It was a schmorl's node. And what I told her is, Mom, you're so lucky because... You don't have to get chemotherapy as part of your treatment, but everything else we put on your prescription, you need to do it now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just end. It's preventive medicine, mm -hmm. right? She had already written the prescription for what was going to reduce her stress responses and increase her relaxation responses. And we all have the opportunity to do that for ourselves. It was a, it was a huge wake-up call to both of us because I realized I had sort of slacked off on my own prescription 
we don't we don't want to wait for a life threatening diagnosis. We don't you know our bodies speak to us in whispers, and when we ignore the whispers, they speak to us in yells. Yep. And most of us have whispers from our bodies all the time. I know I do. And if I listen to the whispers and and get proactive about you know handling the whispers, then I know I'm more likely to prevent a, a life threatening illness. So that's my charge to everybody is do this practice now. Don't wait until somebody tells you you have metastatic cancer. Like, look, take a look at your life and, and go through the six steps to healing yourself. Um, read the book. It's Mind Over Medicine, Scientific Proof That You Can Heal Yourself. And, and download the free self-healing kit from mindovermedicinebook.com. There's the 10 Secrets to Healing Yourself and that meditation I spoke about earlier. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, it's, I, I, I am so passionate about doing this work now because when I think back to what I was doing when I was seeing 40 patients a day, I'm, I mean, I have, I've had to forgive myself from the shame that I feel about how much more I could have been helping people. And I was just ignorant. I didn't know. And I didn't have time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm teaching doctors now how to do this work. So, so stay tuned because there's going to be trained, certified physicians who, are, who know how to, do, how to work with patients and partner in this way. But until then, you can always just give a copy of the book to your doctor and see if they're on board and, and really become a, a partner, a proactive partner in making your body as optimally healthy as it can be so that you can live to be as old as you want to live to be. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. And I'll have the links, all the links you mentioned on um, the show notes for our interview today. So thank sure. you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.